This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio and iTunes. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. Mark Rotella is on his summer vacation, so if you like, you can picture me running back and forth across the studio playing both our parts. On today's show, author Cara Braden discusses her debut novel, The Longest Night. Then PW Senior Reviews Editor Peter Cannon talks about some juicy recent thriller novels, as well as some titles to keep in mind for the fall. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by Nielsen Bookscan. And my special co-host for this segment is PW Features Editor Carolyn Juris. Welcome to the show, Carolyn. Thanks, Rose. It's always nice to have you here. So tell us a little bit about um, what you do as the Features Editor with the bestsellers, because I don't think that people necessarily even think about there being a bestsellers editor at PW, but there is, and it's you. So what's that like? Well, it's funny. I always thought that bestsellers magically appeared and they actually take little work to put together. Once I've had a good look at the bestseller list, um, one thing I look for is uh, what's new this week, which you've all heard Rose and Mark discuss. And I assign uh, reviews editors and other people on staff to expand on those debuts. Why are they important? What happened with them this week? That kind of thing. That makes perfect sense. And um, also, you you very modestly don't mention that you send out emails that we find invaluable, highlighting those titles (laughs) so that we know what to talk about in each week's show. Uh, So here's what's hot on the hardcover fiction list, according to Carolyn's email. So if I miss something, it's her fault. (laughs) Uh, We have a new number one. It is Mean Streak by Sandra Brown. This is from Grand Central. It's a solid novel of romantic suspense, according to the PW Review. Uh, It's about a woman who is an heiress and a successful pediatrician in Atlanta and also a marathon runner. So this this woman sounds like a superhero to me. Uh, But she disappears while she's training uh, and uh, awakens in a remote cabin of a man who doesn't restrain her, but he does refuse to let her leave. Uh, and so she's she distrusts him, begins to question his motives. And meanwhile, uh, there's a separate parallel plot involving an FBI agent who comes closer and closer to Emery and her mysterious captor. Well, thank goodness. Yeah. So I I don't think you'll need to worry. I'm sure she'll be fine. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, the the PW review says that florid prose and some problematic power dynamics render the sex scenes more troubling than titillating, but Brown ends her Gone Girl narrative with a surprising denouement that hits the reader like a well-aimed blow to the back of the head. Oh dear. <laughs> so that that sounds uh, definitely interesting and worth picking up, and uh, about 20,000 people have agreed with us so far on that this week, so that's a, a very good start. A little further down the list, we have Adultery by Paulo Coelho, whose last name I'm probably mispronouncing, uh, translated by the, from the Portuguese. Uh, that's at number eight. 
on our hardcover fiction list. Uh, the PW Review said this review the, uh, said this novel is disappointing and it suffers from its lead character's navel gazing. Um, that's uh, rather unfortunate, given especially uh, Hoylo's reputation as an excellent writer of uh, powerful characters. But uh, we say that his best work is personal and expansive. And unfortunately, this novel has a very constrained setting in Geneva. uh, And what is personal quickly becomes plodding. So uh, unfortunately, there's also uh, less of the spare evocative prose and more overwrought sentences. So uh, on the whole, not what one would expect. And I, I do also wonder, given that it's translated and there are two different translators credited, whether that might be part of the issue with the prose. So I'd be interested to hear what people think of it in the original Portuguese. There's also uh, further down on the list, a Spanish language version that hit um, that sold about 4,400 copies its first week. Oh, interesting. So clearly he has an audience out there. Yeah, I don't think there's any question of that. Um, and audiences in many, many languages. Uh, but I, that's quite unusual to see a book in Spanish hit the U.S. bestseller list. I, I don't recall the last time that's happened. It was actually uh, last July, uh, the memoir of Jenny Rivera, who is a singer and actress. She hit the trade paperback list um, 9,000 copies sold in Spanish, 4,000 in English its first week. You have this right at your fingertips. I'm so (laughs) impressed. I had a little help on that one. And uh, finally, just going a little bit further down the list, I wanted to touch on number 13, uh, which is We Are Not Ourselves by Matthew Thomas. This is um, the fourth book I've seen in the past year with a title that begins with the word we. Uh, And uh, Karen Joy Fowler uh, came up with with one and a couple of science fiction authors as well, Daryl Gregory and Jeff Summers. There just appears to be this this we Hmm. zeitgeist, this, this first person plural. We gave this a starred review the the we here is now pw um just to be clear who we is uh so we gave it a starred review said it is a powerful and significant debut novel that masterfully evokes one woman's life in the context of a brilliantly observed irish working class milieu this is actually quite a long review Uh, i suspect we gave it a, a, a box and some prominent placement which it sounds like it deserves um and it involves uh pretty much everything that one would expect from uh, that that sort of quintessentially American family novel. Um, it's got a, a heroine who was the only child and dutiful caretaker of alcoholic parents, her attempts to move up the social ladder, uh, her difficult marriage, and her attempt to pursue her own career. And eventually her husband is diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's. And so just as she thinks she's finally getting what she wanted, it starts to be taken away from her. We say that Thomas works on a large canvas to create a memorable depiction of Eileen's vibrant spirit, the intimacy of her love for Ed, and the desperate stoicism she exhibits as reality narrows her dreams. It's a great phrase. Uh, And the the novel really combines emotional truthfulness with texture and scope to create an unforgettable narrative. So that's uh, quite a a powerful review there. And uh, the books sold a a little bit under 5,000 copies so far, but that's still enough to get it to number 13 on the fiction list. Yeah, that's a nice showing. So what do we have on nonfiction? So nonfiction this week is pretty interesting. At number one, we have the fifth edition uh, Dungeons & Dragons Player's Handbook. 
and I may be mangling some of the syntax there. No, that's, um, that's all I can tell you as a, as a former D&D player. That's all correct. So this is the first new handbook uh, since 2008, June of 2008. And this one has sold about a little more than 22,000 copies its first week out. That's very impressive. Which is very impressive. Uh, the fourth edition handbook sold about half that in its debut week. And it went on to sell almost 115,000 in hardcover. So that seems to bode well for this one. What do you think is pushing that uh, initial boost? Has there been a lot of discussion of the book, a lot of social media promotion, a lot of anticipation? There is. I believe that actually the creators or the people who are running it now were soliciting um, opinions from longtime D&D players and I think they were feeding information out there, seeing what people thought, how it would affect play, that sort of thing. So I think there has been a lot of pre-pub buzz for this. Interesting. Well, it certainly seems to have uh, worked out well for them. And I see a- another Wizards of the Coast book actually just a little further down at number seven. Uh, but this is uh, not one of the source books, it looks like. Right. This is a module, I believe they're called, mm-hmm. which is a self-contained adventure within the game. Makes perfect sense. So um, it gives you a way to start playing right away, even if you're not one of those folks like me who were playing it back <laughs> when it was D&D 1 and 2. Right, exactly. Um, a more experienced dungeon master perhaps doesn't need one, but for the newbies, it's a it's probably a good one to pick up. And that did about 4,800 uh, copies this week. Very nice. So uh, what else is on the nonfiction list? So... Um, Pretty much doing a 180 from Dungeons and Dragons is The Way Forward by Paul Ryan, who you may remember was Mitt Romney's running mate. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is a congressperson from Wisconsin and a possible presidential hopeful for 2016. Uh, his book had an announced first printing of 150,000 copies, and it has sold just over 6,000, which is a different number <laughs> <laughs> indeed it is a slightly slightly smaller number but you know he's just getting started with this he's uh he's on a 20 stop tour uh as of about a week ago uh starting in philadelphia uh with nine stops in florida uh so uh, one could imagine sales might pick up there Right. And, you know, I'm sure it's one of those things where he sells a lot in person that he'll go and pack the house with his biggest fans who all want to buy three, four or five copies and hand them out to everyone they know. Exactly. I think we can expect something like that. But what I'm understanding from these numbers is that if Loth the Spider Queen were to run for president, she would have a better shot, at least with the book readers, than Paul Ryan. It sounds like that's that's the way it would go. All right. We can only hope. We can only hope. Well, thank you very much, Carolyn. Uh, it is great to have your insight and input on the show. I, I just feel smarter just for having you here. Well, thanks, Rose. It was great. Always a pleasure. I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Cara Braden tells us about the voyage from fanfic writer to professionally published. We'll be right back. Hey, I'm Rudy Rasmus, the author of Love, Period, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Welcome back. I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, I've got Cara Braden on the line. Her debut novel is The Longest Night. Cara, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So tell us a little bit about, uh, first of all, about the plot of your book, and then we're going to get into the very interesting way that you ended up publishing the book. 
The Longest Night in the Cabin Romance. It's about a woman who lives in the middle of nowhere, Canada, for some very, very interesting reasons, and a man who gets sent to stay with her to remove him from the temptation of living in Manhattan. Uh, he is addicted to painkillers after a car accident, and he's completely unsuited to living anywhere but in the middle of the big city. So he's out of his element. She's used to living alone, so having company puts her out of her element, and it's the story of how they how they go from being complete strangers with a, a grudging need to stay together to actually falling in love. You've said that you're not actually a big fan of romance novels, so how did you end up writing one? It was entirely an accident. I love writing character-based stories and getting into relationships and I never really thought of that as a romance story because back when I was growing up, uh, romance novels were bodice rippers. They were exaggerated, um, full of tropes, um, heroines who could barely tie their own shoes, uh, alpha heroes who wouldn't take no for an answer. And none of that ever appealed to me. So I was writing what I thought were just stories, stories about people who were uh, motivated by real um, desires, real fears, uh, and who just interacted with one another. And as it happened, they fell in love. Turns out that that's a romance novel. So what do you usually prefer to read instead of romances? I love science fiction and fantasy. Mm -hmm. uh, I also love Cold War thrillers. I'm, uh, I grew up reading Tom Clancy, Robert Ludlum, uh, spy stuff. You know, I'm a Cold War baby. So that's my childhood. And I've read, I would say before I started actually intentionally writing a romance novel, I've probably read five romances in my entire life, so not not that many. But it sounds like you managed to incorporate some of that thriller tension into this story. I mean, you have the isolation, you have the element of drugs, I and mean, not illegal drugs, but certainly someone who's misusing them. You know, I I did. Uh, but it's not the focus of the story. Um, I, there was actually a point where I had considered having people from Cecily's past come and find her at the cabin, um, basically through uh, an information link through Ian's brother's uh, military contracting company. And I decided not to. I decided that, yes, it would be dramatic. There, there would be a firefight, a, a chase, something like that, but I thought it took away from the focus on the characters. So the, it's more that they're dealing with the aftermath of those aspects. You know, it doesn't show how Ian got into his accident, which wasn't entirely an accident. He's a criminal attorney, and he managed to cross the wrong people. Mm -hmm. It shows the aftermath of what Cecily went through in the war. And it shows how they heal and recover, or I should, I should say start to recover, because it, it's not a magical on and off switch. They're still dealing with these problems at the end of the book, 
they're just not dealing with them alone anymore. Well, it sounds like maybe not a happy ever after in the traditional way, but uh, a happiness with anticipation for more happiness. You know, I'm not entirely sure what the difference is between happily ever after and happy for now. I've I've heard some people say The Longest Night is more a, a happy for now book, but I'm not sure that anybody ever gets a happily ever after in life because there's always something that's going to happen, something that's going to go wrong. But if you have somebody at your side who loves you, somebody who's standing by you and is willing to to do what it takes to help you get through it, I think that's a better happily ever after than any fairy tale romance. I think that since Cecily and Ian aren't alone at the end, uh, they have each other, and you can see the path that they're going to take as they continue to heal. So to me, that feels a lot like the happily ever after that they need. No, that makes perfect sense. So you live in Arizona. What was it like writing about the Canadian wilderness while while you're sitting there? I mean, right now it's late August. You must be sweltering. Um, it was mental paradise. <laughs> <laughs> I love the snow. I grew up in New York on Long Island. I lived there for 23 years. And I adore the snow. And the last time I saw snow was in December of 1997 when I went to the Grand Canyon. Other than that, I've seen a couple of sprinkles here and there. You know, it it does occasionally snow in Phoenix at 5 o'clock in the morning in the depth of winter. We'll get a couple of flakes or some hailstones. But wow, it was so good to at least send my imagination somewhere that wasn't 100 degrees. I'm sure. And how, how did you research the setting to, to give it that verisimilitude? Uh, I had multiple Canadian friends who were helping. Um, and we, we got into all sorts of arguments. For example, Canadians generally, and I'm going to be very general here, take off their shoes when they enter a house understandable. They're walking through rain or snow or slush. Don't want to track mud in. Mm-hmm. Cecily doesn't because she needs to be able to get out. She needs that escape. Um, she doesn't want to stop and put on her shoes. So for her, it's a level of preparedness. But for my Canadian readers, it was a lot of pushing back saying, oh, well, wait, she wouldn't do that. Hmm. So there were Canadians who helped me. Uh, and other than that, it was a lot of Google, a whole lot. I, I researched uh, hunting laws and moon phases on certain dates. I researched average weather, uh, everything, I could, everything I could think of to get as many details as possible. That sounds almost like your science fiction fan background coming through this uh, this attention to world building. I'd like to think it is. Uh, you know, for example, Cecily's plane is a Kit Fox Model 4. I never come out and say that in the book, but I learned more about Kit-built uh, small planes, including runway length. My, my husband was in the U.S. Air Force for 21 years, 
so we had a long discussion over how long the runway is at Cecily's house, hmm. things like that. I was also going to ask about the military aspect of the book, because that's one of those places, uh, the, the, the line that I learned in fantasy writing is that uh, the three things your readers will care the most about when it comes to accuracy are guns, gowns, and horses. <laughs> and, uh, like and, and the military, particularly, uh, you know, there's a lot of military romance these days and a lot of readers who expect a, a very particular level of accuracy and detail. So how, how did you go about researching that? Was it just long chats with your husband or uh, more Googling or did you have other sources? Um, it was a few long chats with my husband, but a whole lot of Googling. Uh, he was in the Air Force, and Cecily was in the Marines. She was an engineer uh, and an officer. He was an NCO. Mm-hmm. So some of, the, some of the culture was familiar, and I was able to draw on his knowledge, but the rest of it, again, I just had to do a lot of research, um, a lot of finding out where she would have been stationed, Uh, because as a woman, I needed her in a situation where she would have faced the enemy, but obviously she wouldn't be on the front lines. So combat engineers was perfect for her. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that, again, that research tied into everything else. Uh, Guns, for example. I'm in Arizona. We have uh, a lot of very easy gun purchases and gun use. I made a couple of trips to the firing range. I went to the local base and I talked to experts there about what kind of guns she might have, what she might take with her if she had to go out and there was a bear in the area, that sort of thing. So your website says author, fangirl, geek, and I was wondering what those three terms mean to you. Well, I have always been an author, and I'm I'm convinced of that because I have been writing since uh, the first story I remember writing was in second grade, but I'm positive I was writing before then. So to me, I've always been a writer. It's just a matter of whether I got paid for it or not. Mm -hmm. Fangirl, I embrace aspects of pop culture. I, I love getting into the details of things like the Marvel movies, you know, looking at the motivation for the characters and all of the Easter eggs that they sneak into the films, uh, Stanley's cameos, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And Geek, I, I was taking computer programming classes in eighth grade. Uh, I've built my own computers. Um, Computers and technology have always been a part of my life. So to me, those three words, the the only other thing I could add in is mom to a lot of pets. Mm-hmm. So how, how do those aspects of your personality intersect? And, and I'm especially curious about the, the author and the fangirl, because uh, I know that you've done some writing of fan fiction. I have written a lot of fan fiction, and I've co-written a lot. And I think that that is what's had the biggest impact on my writing uh, in three ways. First, I write dialogue so much better after learning to co-write. 
the way I co-write, I'll have my co-writer write one character, I'll write another, and we'll switch back and forth. Uh, whoever's got the point of view character will write the thoughts and emotions and feelings, and whoever's not the point of view character will write the observable details. So you don't get the switching point of view. So co-writing has taught me a lot of very technical aspects of writing that I, I just hadn't mastered in traditional solo writing. Fan fiction also takes away the burden of creating everything. If you're writing fan fiction, you don't stare at a blank piece of paper and think, okay, I have to build a world, I have to build history, I have to build characters, I have to build a timeline. You can instead pick and choose aspects. So you can really, you can put aside certain aspects of the creation and focus instead on, I'm going to take these characters from this universe and put them into a situation, and I'm going to write that story. And it, it gets a lot of feedback also, because there's a huge audience for this sort of thing. And you get immediate, almost real-time feedback. You post a story, people are putting up uh, comments and critiques within hours. So it's not like publishing a book and then you're refreshing the Amazon page, hoping <laughs> somebody's posted one review. Yeah. The other thing is, I am prolific at this sort of thing. I, I did a calculation in between May and I think two weeks ago, I had written or co-written over 300,000 words. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> now, it'd be nice if I could get paid for those, but every word that I write makes me a better writer and enables me to write more. So fan fiction is also a way for me to basically to keep the engine running. You know, it takes the pressure of, oh, I have to work on my next book or I have to come up with an idea for another story. And instead, it lets you just free write. That makes perfect sense. We're going to take a quick break. Don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. I'm talking with Cara Braden, who's the author of The Longest Night. Now, you had a rather unusual path to professional publication. Tell us about that. Uh, I had actually posted one of my fanfics, and somebody at Sourcebooks read it and liked it so much they recommended me to an editor there. She contacted me on Twitter and the next thing I know, I'm on the phone with her, and she's offering me a book deal to turn that fanfic into The Longest Night. And I think, I think the one thing that people are starting to realize about fanfic is it breaks a lot of tropes. Uh, for example, having Cecily be the, the Marine who's fighting PS, 
or PTSD, uh, who is capable of hunting and butchering a deer um, instead of having the hero be that that character. Mm-hmm. In fanfic, there are a lot of um, a lot of explorations of breaking out of standard roles. And I think that that's one of the things that caught her attention. And really, it was the fulfillment of a lifetime dream for me. I can imagine. It, when E.L. James hit it big with Fifty Shades of Grey, which started out as fan fiction, did you ever think that could be me? Yes. <laughs> I really did. Um, Fifty Shades of Grey is very contentious in fandom. Mm-hmm. Um, in a lot of ways, fandom goes hand-in-hand hand with a lot of social awareness. I have learned more about issues like consent and respect in relationships from being part of fandom than I ever had in my entire life. So one thing you'll see in my books is there's a level of consent and awareness um, between my characters. So Ian reassuring Cecily that he won't do anything she doesn't want. She can say no at any time. To me, that was really important to put into the book. Mm -hmm. And that's not necessarily present in Fifty Shades. Not so much. Yeah. Um, so tell us a little bit more. Uh, I, I've done my own share of writing fanfic, so I'm familiar with these communities, but I'm, I'm sure some of our listeners are not. What is it like being part of a community of fanfiction writers? It's fantastic. It's encouraging. It's positive. It's mature. I mean, most of, most of the fanfic writers I know are in their 30s, 40s, and 50s. This isn't this isn't a bunch of, of teenagers and preteens who are um, trying to uh, embrace whatever it is that they like. We have a lot of discussions on really deep character motivations, um, analysis of. Uh, for example, the lighting in a TV show mm-hmm. or the musical score. We have people who teach these things professionally who are analyzing to say, okay, this is what's actually going on in this scene. Or in this movie, this character, every time he comes on screen, you'll hear this this background noise, and that's meant to give the listener a certain emotional charge that they may not be conscious of. So it's an incredible learning experience, and it really is positive. And maybe that's just I've lucked into the right communities, but I have only very, very rarely had someone harshly criticize what I do or what I write. Um, I've never experienced the uh, a negativity trying to exclude people or push them out. Um, I guess it's what a, a normal writer's circle would be, you know, where you get a, a critique circle of conventional writers. But you all share a love for this particular fandom. Which, which fandoms are you in? 
uh, quite a few, and it changes. It's fluid. Uh, I have been in supernatural fandom until I got really bored with the show. Mm-hmm. Sherlock on the BBC, uh, but I've always been a Sherlock Holmes fan since I was a little girl. Uh, I mentioned Marvel Cinematic Universe. They're doing incredible things with their characters, and they're hiding it under the guise of superhero movies. Uh, Those are probably my three big ones right now, Uh, but I enjoy reading and talking about Doctor Who, Mm -hmm. the new Who versus the old Who. My husband grew up in Great Britain, so he has his opinions, so that's been fun. Uh, but there is there's probably a fandom for every every TV show, every movie, even some focused on the actual actors. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if you, for example, Sebastian Stan, who played uh, the Winter Soldier in the latest Captain America, his career has seen a resurgence because people are now going and looking for his old material now that they've seen what he can do with half his face hidden by a mask and, I don't know, like 10 lines of dialogue. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's been pretty amazing to see what people come up with. It's very dynamic. So how have your friends and your fans from those communities continued to support you as you've made the jump to being professionally published? Do you feel you can kind of bridge those worlds and have one foot in each? Um, yes, and they have been fantastic, and a lot of that credit goes right back to Sourcebooks. Um, they have allowed me to keep my work up and available because the longest night is different enough from my fanfic. I mean, I, it was a complete rewrite. I didn't just find and replace names. Right. And there are some scenes that are almost the same, but there are some that are extremely different and some that are brand new. So by allowing me to keep that posted, we kept a lot of goodwill with the community. And I think in a way gave more validation to the community. Uh, Fanfic writers often are very, very careful about hiding their Uh, fanfic pseudonyms, they don't actually tell people, because Mm -hmm. people have all these misconceptions about it. You know, they say fanfic isn't real writing, or it's all kids, that sort of thing. So by leaving it up, we got a lot of goodwill. I have a lot of people who are really supportive. Um, They've bought the book, and they've reviewed it, they've recommended it. So it's been... It's been exciting, and I think we've even gotten a few people who, who, like me, had preconceptions about the romance genre and have opened their eyes to, hey, not all romance is the same. So I'm looking forward to their reception of my second book, because that's completely uh, original. It wasn't based on fanfic at all. Mm-hmm. We'll see how that goes. So that one's finished, I know, because I have a review copy of it on my desk right now. Um, Are you planning to do a a third one in the series or branch out from there? Uh, I would like to actually do three more, and I'm working on uh, writing up those story arcs now. 
But if I have my way, we're going to meet a couple of uh, a couple of new characters in the third book, and then Marguerite is going to come back for the fourth book, and then Preston will finally finally get his chance to shine in the fifth. So it sounds like uh, even as you're you're moving into this professional publication sphere, um, you're still very character focused, and you you say those names like they're old friends. Yes, and it really feels like they are. Um, I can't write a character that hasn't come to life for me, whether that's original or in fanfic. Um, I I need to know that character inside and out before I can put a single word on the page. So I could tell you right now um, what a conversation between Preston and Marguerite would be like under any number of different circumstances, and that's how I write. I'm, uh, you've probably heard panther versus plotter. Mm-hmm. I'm very much a panther. I don't necessarily know what my plot is going to be. I know who my characters are and the situations I'm going to put them in. But then I don't necessarily have any idea how they're going to respond. So there have been a few times when my characters have surprised me. Well, I'm, I'm sure there will be many more. So before we wrap this up, uh, do you have any advice for folks out there like you who've uh, always written and always dreamed of writing professionally uh, who might want to make the leap the way you did? Because not everyone is going to get a tweet from Sourcebooks, though. It's, it's such a wonderful story. I would say write and write more. Uh, I believe firmly that the more you write, the more you can write. And there is never a wasted word. I have, I have happily deleted 60,000 words or more because they weren't right. They weren't, uh, the story wasn't going in the right direction. The characters weren't true to themselves, whatever. And every time it's been the right decision, no matter how much it hurts. So write and get your work out there. There are plenty of uh, places where you can post your work for people to see and get feedback. All right. Well, thank you so much. I've been talking with Kara Braden. You can find her book, The Longest Night, in stores right now. Kara, it's been a real pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much for having me. This was exciting and fun. I'm so glad. I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Senior Reviews Editor Peter Cannon brings us the news from the world of mysteries and thrillers. Stay tuned. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. Join the community of book lovers at Publishers Weekly Radio every Friday and on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. I'm Rose Fox. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. Today, PW Senior Reviews Editor Peter Cannon is here to tell us what's happening in Thrillerland. Hi, Peter. Hi, Rose. Always nice to have you here. So um, you mentioned a couple of interesting titles that uh, came out this spring and summer, and I was wondering if you would give us the rundown. 
Well, before I talk about those spring and summer books, I want to put a plug in for a forthcoming fall book, The Forgers by Bradford Morrow. The starred review will be running in Monday's issue, and we'll be following up with a Q&A two weeks later. I just want to get readers uh, as excited uh, about this novel as, as I am. It's the first crime novel by Bradford Morrow, who's known as a mainstream literary author. It's a murder mystery about a book dealer who's found uh, with his found found with his head bashed in and his hands cut off at his uh, home uh, on Long Island. And the narrator, a classic unreliable narrator we soon discover, um, has a connection with, with the victim. Uh, he's dating the sister of the victim, and he ends up helping the sister kind of get, get through the, the grief uh, in the wake of her brother's uh, har- horrible murder. Uh, but what's really interesting about this book is you get a lot of information about book collecting, about forging. In fact, the narrator admits in, I think, the second or third chapter that he himself is a forger or has been a forger and hmm. almost went to prison. He he copped a deal. Uh, meanwhile, he starts receiving these rather odd, threatening notes uh, written in the handwriting of dead authors like Henry James and Conan Doyle. Hmm. And, you know, the plot thickens to the point where it becomes more than just uh, a whodunit. And it's it's very subtly done. There are clues dropped here, here and there as to what's going on. But I think you, the reader, get carried away, if you're at all interested in books, uh, with the background on uh, the um, what goes into be, being a forger. A, a, there are some, some specific examples. One is a, a set of letters that Conan Doyle wrote to his publisher uh, talking about uh, how, how he came to, to write The Hound of the Baskervilles. Mm-hmm. And the narrator actually has fashioned this correspondence that he's successfully sold to some gullible dealers. Uh, so if you're interested in Conan Doyle and Sherlock Holmes, that's another angle to this book. Now, Morrow certainly dabbled in genre before. I mean, he he edited an anthology of the new Gothic, That's right. you know, um, 20, 20 years ago or more. So um, he's certainly uh, got some connections with that. But this is his first real genre well, his novel. Well, yeah, his first real you know, crime no- novel. It started as a short story or a novella that he did for Otto Penzler. Mm-hmm. And then at Otto's uh, suggestion, he expanded it uh, to short novel length. So that sounds like a very interesting book to keep an eye out for. And when is it coming out? It's a November title. All right. Well, definitely uh, one to watch for. And there's going to be a Q&A with him, correct? That That's right. Uh, the September 15th issue, there'll be a Q&A. All right. So uh, PW readers, as well as listeners, keep an eye on our website for that. Um, so what else do you have for us? Well, I want to talk about some more, uh, well, books that are already available one of which is uh, White Fire by uh, Douglas 
Preston and Lincoln Child. This came out in uh, hardcover at the end of last year, but has been reissued this spring in, in paperback. Uh, it was highly recommended to me. It's one in their uh, Agent Pendergast series. And the hook, for me anyway, was that there's a Sherlock Holmes connection mm -hmm. uh, with this story. The opening chapter is a wonderful prologue set in the early 1890s. This is based on an actual dinner where Conan Doyle, uh, at that time he'd only published his first Sherlock Holmes novel, and Oscar Wilde and a couple of other literary types, plus this American publisher of Lippincott's magazine, met at a London restaurant. And this is what actually happened. The uh, Lippincott's editor got Doyle and Wilde each to promise to write a novel. Mm -hmm. In uh, Wilde's case, that was a picture of Dorian Gray. And for Doyle, it was a sign of the four. But in this novel, uh, there's a delicious scene where Wilde gives Doyle advice on his, the character of Sherlock Holmes hmm. based on a study in Scarlet saying, well, you've made him sort of an eccentric, but you've got to you know, make more of this. And uh, in essence, he, he's the experienced author giving uh, the, the neophyte some advice that actually based on uh, subsequent home stories, Doyle took. But this is, this is wholly imaginary. Right. Uh, but the, the main story takes place in present-day Colorado. There have been some uh, mysterious uh, uh, murders, cases of arson that relate to crimes back in the 19th century. And the connection here is that Wilde, on one of his American tours, visited this mining camp and heard this horrific uh, story about cannibalism that he related to Doyle at this dinner. Again, this is fictitious. And Doyle actually later wrote a Sherlock Holmes story, inspired this. Again, a fictional Sherlock Holmes story, as it were. And this turns out to be a key element of the plot. Uh, and the Doyle manuscript, which has been hidden in London for decades, is unearthed. And one chapter is, is, is simply a transcript of this unpublished Sherlock Holmes story, hmm. which is you know, very well done. And again, uh, Sherlock Holmes fans, if you haven't already read Whitefire, this this is a must. It's interesting how how many ways Sherlock Holmes sort of works into our popular culture. The author I was just talking with, Kara Braden, uh, started out as a Sherlock Holmes fan fiction writer, writing on the the uh, BBC series, which could itself be considered fan fiction or a fan work of the original Conan Doyle. And it, when what is it that uh, makes it so? incredibly enduringly popular and i know this is a question many people have asked i'm, I'm trying to think <laughs> think think of an answer based on something i've read about what others have said <laughs> but i think that the gist is that in some ways he's this archetypal character but there's not too much that's uh, described by Doyle. Yeah, yes, I mean, there are sort of the cliches about his drug addiction and his, his pipe smoking and, and you know, this sort of the classic armchair sleuth. But uh, he, he, he's a, a, a kind of figure that others can easily expand on and, and impose their own interpretation mm -hmm. with, without real damage to the original character. 
who was who sort of utterly impossible in, in the first place. I mean, think about it. I, I recently uh, saw uh, or re- reviewed um, the movie uh, My Fair Lady. And of course, Professor Higgins is a very obvious uh, Holmes figure. And I know that Shaw quite deliberately said, okay, uh, in real life, Holmes would be impossible. Right. And this is, you know, what he would be like if he, he was a linguistics ac- expert. Sure, uh, why not? <laughs> utterly, utterly insufferable. And, and um, so you know, th- there's a, you know, a, w- a wonderful uh, variation on, on the theme. And it, it seems these very variations are endless as all the the recent Holmes knockoffs, mainly on screen, mm-hmm. show. It's just uh, endlessly <laughs> productive in that way. And um, I like the idea of, of writing this this faux unearthed story because it's a, a, a great way to maybe get around some of the current legal restrictions, which are still kind of up in the air on, on writing official Holmes stories. Right. Well, uh, there's been a recent court ruling in the favor of Leslie Klinger and those who claim that the Holmes stories are uh, out of out of copyright. And in fact, that's a news item for this fall. The original anthology of Holmes pastiches that was the prompt for the court case is finally coming out in November. Hmm. Uh, it was delayed because the Conan Doyle estate said, you've got to pay us uh, for u- using the Holmes character. And Leslie Klinger, who was one of the co-editors of this anthology, said no. And guess what, I'm going to take this to court. And so far, he's been winning and is at a point where he feels comfortable and his publisher feels comfortable uh, reissuing or or finally issuing, I believe it's called, In the Company of Sherlock Holmes. Now, I haven't read this, but I've dipped into it. But that's another wonderful fall book. There's a Harry Bosch uh, story. Michael Connolly you know, mm-hmm. writes a contemporary L.A. Uh, series about, about a uh, sort of classic P.I. cop. Well, he, he does sort of a variation on one of the uh, classic home stories, The Crooked Man, you know, done in contemporary Los Angeles. Hmm. And I just just skimmed it, but I could see that's going to be a lot of fun for Holmes fans. So going back a bit just to books that are out now, I know you, you had another title or two that you wanted to mention. Yes, I, I do want to mention two others that I've read recently, spring titles. Uh, the first is Greg Isles' Natchez Burning, which is his fourth Pen Cage series. This uh, uh this is the first book in the series I've read. It got very well reviewed. It's the first in a trilogy and uses the civil rights movement of the 1960s as its backdrop. It's set in the 21st century, but there are crimes that go back to the early 1960s that still uh, impinge on what's going on in, in the present day. And Penn Cage, who's the uh, mayor of Natchez, the, the, the hero, and his friends uh, go after these really bad guys who were, if anything, worse than Ku Klux Klan types and uh, try to bring justice after many decades uh, for these you know, innocent 
mostly black black people who were murdered mm-hmm. back back then. It's a long book, and the action only takes place over several days. Uh, but it's it's highly suspenseful. Uh, the good guys are in jeopardy nearly every other chapter. The bad guys are just so bad, and. Uh, I'd sort of forgotten that, in fact, this is only the start of a trilogy. Wow, and that there, sounds very there, intense. There are two, two, more, two more to go. Uh, so you, you have to be prepared to make an investment mm-hmm. of your time. But uh, it, it, for me, it was certainly a page turner. Wow. That sounds very exciting. And uh, anything else that's yes, uh, the, on your shelves right now? Yes, the other book I want to recommend is Philip Carr's Prayer, a standalone, which uh, is a break from his uh, uh, P.I. Bernie uh, Gunther series about an anti-Nazi cop in 1930s, 40s Berlin. This is set mostly in contemporary Houston, Texas, Mm -hmm. and it's about an FBI agent who gets on the trail of a series of uh, bizarre deaths that... And it's not clear whether they're murders or suicides, but they're all prominent atheists who are dying in this mysterious way or various mysterious ways. Meanwhile, there's a serial killer targeting uh, religious do-gooders. Hmm. And are are they related? Well, what starts out as a realistic crime thriller takes a supernatural turn <laughs> with some you know, heavy religious implications. And I can't say too much else because it would spoil the, spoil the plot. Sure. But uh, I mean, it, is, it is certainly a dark tale, you know, noir in, in the, the classic sense. I mean, the, the narrator, I mean, he, he, he does survive his ordeal, but barely. Uh, there, there's no chance of, of a uh, sequel to this one, I, I, I don't think. But anyhow, I, I found it uh, an enjoyable and you know utterly original sort of blending of of, of genres. And I think car fans will, are, are going to want to read it, and I think a lot of other people are going to too that have an interest in organized religion and the well literally the power of prayer and what demons one can summon hmm. de- depending on your religious re- affiliation wow that also sounds pretty intense so it it sounds like um I, I always sort of forget that there are standalone thrillers, which I, I realize is my failing a bit, but I, I see so many of the series names on the bestseller list when I'm looking at them every week with Mark that uh, I just, I don't really notice these standalone books. I think it's fair to say the standalones don't make it on the bestseller list. The Bernie Gunther novels, for example, in the last two or three years have been hitting the bestseller list. But I'm pretty sure prayer never made it. Hmm. Why do you think that is? I think it's because with a series, you're able to build up an audience. And, you know, maybe Carr's done a dozen Bernie Gunther novels by this point. And I say, when I heard that he was doing a non-Bernie Gunther, I was disappointed. And I said, gosh, I was so much looking forward to the next one. 
and I really wasn't that interested in in reading hmm. prayer until I heard, learned more about it. And then I said, "Aha! This this sounds interesting," and I went ahead and read it and was pleasantly surprised. But I think a series is a guarantee, right. and even if it's an author you like, you, you never know whether it's going to be any good or not. And most readers, of course, like more of the same in, in genre. And Carr is someone who likes to experiment, do, do different things that, that are outside his usual path. And I think he loses a lot of fans as a result, but I certainly approve of his daring to do something different. And I think in the long run, that's you know, all, all the better for him and his readers. Well, it makes perfect sense. Thank you, Peter. It's always great to have you on the show. Thank you, Rose. And now a final word from our sponsors. Hi, I'm Patrick Swenson, author of The Ultra Thin Man, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for an interview with Karen Abbott, author of Liar, Temptress, Soldier, Spy. And we'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can find this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio on our website at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and also on iHeartRadio and iTunes, available for you to listen absolutely free. Check the site every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 